Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Lital Levy. Uh, Professor Levy is an assistant professor of comparative literature at Princeton University, where she teaches modern Hebrew and Arabic literatures and literary theory. And today we'll be talking about her new book, Poetic Trespass, Writing Between Hebrew and Arabic in Israel-Palestine. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Lital Levy. Uh, professor Levy is an assistant professor of comparative literature at Princeton University, where she teaches modern Hebrew and Arabic literatures and literary theory. And today we'll be talking about her new book, Poetic Trespass, Writing Between Hebrew and Arabic in Israel-Palestine. Lital, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, you're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to have you. I'm wondering if we could begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. So I have multiple interests in the topic that led me to write this book. Um, first of all, I have some family connections to Israel and going back further to Iraq. Um, I was always interested growing up in Hebrew and Arabic, and that just found its way when I started college into academic interests. And I kind of started pursuing this question of the relationship between Hebrew and Arabic um, in work I did for my senior thesis in college, and then that eventually took me to graduate school. So um, just something that was really always, you know, both of personal and intellectual interest. What wrote me, uh, sorry, what brought me to write this book specifically was just that I, I felt that this story hadn't really been explored. And by that, I mean that there had been work done on aspects of um, Hebrew and Arabic interaction and literature and culture, but that there hadn't really been any attempt to really follow the arc of this story from the beginning of Zionist settlement through the present. And I was really interested in pursuing that and just looking at the different twists and turns in the relationship as it evolved, especially because I was fascinated by um, the role of Arabic in the early Zionist movement and how so, you know, it's not really remembered today, but it provided such a kind of um, important role model for the pioneers and kind of trying to reinvent themselves and also supplied um, the, you know, the revival of Hebrew um, literally with some new words as well as kind of just the overall inspiration. So I was interested in bringing that part of the story back into the, the picture that I was trying to uh, create. Maybe that's a good place to start. Can you tell us a little bit more about the historical relationship between Hebrew and Arabic? Um, yes, absolutely. So the fascinating thing is that while people might now, you know, really think of these two languages within the framework of con of conflict, um, their relationship goes back very far. Um, in fact, all the way back, in a sense, all the way uh, back to early Islam. Um, so we know that there were uh, Jews who were actually writing Arabic poetry even before Islam. But um, that would be more, you know, on the level of Jewish involvement in Arabic. If we look specifically at Hebrew and Arabic, then we would really go back to the 10th century and start there with, for instance, Sadia Gaon's translation 
um, of the Bible into Arabic and um, the uh, that leading into the wonderful moment that we have in El Andalus or Sfarad in Islamic Spain between um, 950 and 1150 with um, Jewish poets who were essentially bilingual writing both in Hebrew and in Arabic. Um, so the two languages have this really long history of um, translation between them, of literary output that you know goes back and forth, and of mutual influence. Um, but again, you know what's really interesting now is that although there is also very fertile interaction between them and this kind of mutual cross pollination, um, it's now within a political framework that is perhaps more analogous to that of post-colonial bilingualism, such as, you know, Arabic and French in North Africa, or um, we might think of, for instance, English in the Indian subcontinent. And yet this is a relationship that has taken on a kind of decisively political turn, but it does have, you know, it is informed by this earlier history of interaction, which is very powerful in the imagination of the writers. People really have the memory of, um, Al Andalus Sfarad and of that golden age in mind, people know about it. And so it's a really complex relationship, which I think very much enriches the literature. And and how does Zionist settlement in Palestine impact that relationship? So, maybe for yes. the listeners who aren't very familiar with this, maybe if you could give them a little bit of background. Yeah, so um so that was really Zionist settlement in Palestine is where we can, you know, kind of begin the story of the relationship between modern Hebrew and modern Arabic. So a major part of the Zionist project, in fact, you might even say that the, the linguistic aspect of the project was as central as the territorial aspect, that Zionism really was seeking to create um, not just a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but specifically a Hebrew nation, right? And that those two aspects of language and territory were really closely intertwined and, and very much inseparable for the idea, this particular nationalism. So European Jewish immigrants were arriving in Palestine. Um, I'll start with the period that's referred to as the second, because I think it was less central at that point, but um, beginning with the second Aliyah, which is after the turn of the 20th century and through the First World War. Um, this is really when you, you begin to see more of a concerted effort to uh, revitalize Hebrew and really make it the spoken living language of, you know, this, this new Jewish uh, um, society that's emerging in Palestine. Um, the problem is that, of course, you know, you're taking a lexicon that's, that's essentially, you know, based mainly on the Bible, a little bit on later layers of Hebrew, but that's very limited and not really suitable for modern life. And so one of the challenges that the um, linguistic uh, uh, revivalists were facing was, you know, where are you going to get new words? Basically, you need to find sources for new coinages, literally to create, you know, add new words to the lexicon. So um, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who is the driving force behind this project, he himself um, felt very strongly that um, Hebrew should borrow as little as possible from European languages, but um, as really that the primary source of new coinages should come from Arabic because it's a Semitic language, it's closely related to Hebrew, and the spirit is going to be kind of much more closely linked to um, the kind of spirit that they're trying to adopt in coming back to Palestine where the people who at this point have the most kind of um, native connection to the landscape are actually Palestinian Arabs, 
who are Arabic speakers. So in other words, there's two um, kind of layers of thought that are intersecting here. One is that linguistically, Arabic is the closest language to Hebrew, and so it would be more authentic to create new words based on Arabic roots as opposed to borrowing from European languages. But the other part of it that, and this is where it gets even more interesting, is that because the Zionist settlers were at this point coming largely from Eastern Europe, um, from a lesser, to a lesser extent also from um, Western Europe, they were coming to a land that they did not have an immediate sense of connection to, and they wanted to reinvent themselves. They needed a model for this. They needed to look around and say, you know, how do we, who are we supposed to be? What do we want to look like? Um, they had developed this kind of romantic fascination with the Palestinian Arabs who were there, who were peasants, who you know, were Bedouin horsemen. Um, there is a great picture that I include in the book of um, Hashomer, that uh, paramilitary organization that um, becomes associated with uh, um, Haganah, kind of like the pre-state uh, armed uh, um, I wouldn't say armed forces, but it's like a paramilitary organization associated with the Zionist movement. So these um, Jewish guardsmen, as it were, um, dress themselves up to look like Bedouin horsemen. There's a wonderful image of this from around 1910. And if you looked at it and you didn't know who they were, you would just think that you were actually looking at Palestinian horsemen, right? Um, so adopting kind of aspects of the dress of the language, um, as it were, kind of imitating them, that became a feature of this early Zionist culture. And it was really considered cool at this point if you could speak some Arabic and even throw Arabic words into your Hebrew. And we have to remember that, I mean, Hebrew was still emerging at this point, right? So um, that was actually kind of a fixture in early Zionist culture at this point, wanting to dress like Arabs, talk like them, look like them, act like them. Because that was a way of kind of asserting your connection to the place and to the landscape on the you know, basis of the people who were there and who just kind of embodied it naturally. So in terms of the linguistic um, side of this, so there actually were a number of new coinages that were based on Arabic roots. And for people who know Hebrew, they might use these terms now without even realizing that they actually were adapted from Arabic cognates. So um, I can give you a couple of examples, which I actually didn't um, even go into in the book. But for people who are listening who know Hebrew, for instance, the word Rashmi, official, comes from the Arabic Rashmi. Um, the Adivut, which is kind of like gentility or politeness, um, comes from the Arabic Adab, which also connotes kind of, uh, you know, politeness um, in another context, actually also high culture, literature. Uh, there's, there's really, you know, any number of examples that you could bring up. And people nowadays use these terms without even realizing that they were from Arabic. So the, I would imagine then that the, the relationship between Hebrew and Arabic and also between the, the Zionist settlers and Arabic must have changed considerably, both with the intensification of the conflict and also with the mass migration of Middle Eastern Jews after 1948. Could you sort of bring us bring us forward a little in that? Sure, absolutely. So um, I was talking earlier about the very early period of Zionist settlement, even before the First World War. Um, you know, going forward, there were a lot of just there was a lot of discussion among members of the Yishuv, the Jewish community in pre-state Palestine, about the character of the state that they were imagining. 
and you know what and the language would it have more of a European character would it have more of a Middle Eastern character so there was never a total consensus on this question and there were definitely people who felt that um, despite the arguments that said that you know Arabic is closely related to Hebrew and we want Hebrew to be authentic and to kind of take on the flavor of the place there were certainly others who argued that um, that was not the way to go, that it would be dragging down the kind of status of this Hebrew culture that was being built, because most of these Zionist leaders, again, were coming from Europe. And if we have to kind of think about it um, historically, at this point in time, the general assumption among Europeans is that, of course, European culture and civilization is superior to non-European culture. In fact, culture by definition is European. It's hard to even imagine, you know, uh, Palestinian Arabs or other Middle Eastern peoples as having a culture per se, because people just thought of culture itself as their culture, you know, high European culture. So there certainly were, uh, you know, there were Zionists who felt that German, in fact, should be the language of instruction and higher education, and that this uh, new society should actually be adopting European cultural mores. Um, as this is still being debated, as we move into the 1920s and especially the 1930s, um, yes, absolutely, you know, given the political development, there is uh, an increasing, um, the, the relations are getting more tense between Palestinians and the Zionist settlers. There is some increasing friction between the two communities. And this intensifies particularly after the um, Arab revolt in 1936, but even earlier, right? So, I mean, as, again, the kind of relationships between the communities are hardening, then the perception of um, the languages as, you know, being on either side of this political divide is also becoming intensified. Um, we can add to that that Hebrew is acquiring, you know, more and more, uh, let's say, status and security. And so, it doesn't need at this point as much of a role model as it had needed earlier, right? Now, at this point also, we have to recall that um, the main problem that Hebrew has is with Yiddish, right? Because Yiddish poses much more of a threat to Hebrew success than any other language, since the majority of the new immigrants are native Yiddish speakers. And so there was actually at this point a really big effort to suppress Yiddish and to make Hebrew the spoken language of the community. Um, but at the same time, the perception, you know, that Arabic is a cool language and that it's something that should be brought into Hebrew that's kind of diminishing. And Arabic is becoming more associated um, with Palestinians in a period in which these political tensions are intensifying. OK, so now we fast forward a little bit. Post-1948, you know, we start getting these massive waves of immigration of Jews from the Middle East. And um, the reasons for this are uh, that... Uh, is kind of a combination of push and pull where um, Arab nationalist movements and governments in these new countries that were at war with Israel are starting to look at their own Jewish communities as fifth columns. And there's a kind of bit of pushing them out. This varied a lot from country to country and place to place. And some of the factors were also economic. At the same time, there's a pool factor coming from the Zionist movement that's sending emissaries and doing a lot of work to try to draw them in. So it's a bit of both. And um, in each country, it was a little bit different. Some countries, it was, you know, like more of a mass immigration and some other countries at this point, it's more of a trickle. But the bottom line is that there are these big waves of Jewish immigration from throughout the Middle East and North Africa um, going 
beginning in the early years of the state and continuing through the 1960s. And this massively changes you know, the character of society, which was, as I said earlier, mostly settled by European Jews. And this also changes the linguistic landscape. So most of these Jews who are coming from these Arabic-speaking countries, um, they are stereotyped by the existing uh, Jewish, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish establishment as kind of primitive and backwards, um, even though, you know, there, there's a great deal of diversity within these communities. So there are people who are coming who are uh, professionals. There are, at the same time, you know, people coming from tiny villages. There's a really large variation in terms of their, you know, educational background, their uh, literacy, their cultural background. But they're essentially lumped together by the establishment and kind of told that they're culturally inferior, that they're backwards. They're also sent to live in these temporary kind of what are called transit camps that were supposed to be kind of like uh, temporary refugee camps with tents and eventually uh, kind of shacks. And these were not as temporary as they should have been for some families that kind of were stuck in these for a number of years. And then also to what's called development towns, which were these kind of marginal communities that were set up in out-of-the-way places, specifically for the purpose of, of kind of trying to settle more of the land of Israel. But, um, but these didn't really have any economic infrastructure. And so they became kind of these depressed, you know, places where people lacked opportunity. And it was primarily Mizrahim who were assigned to live in these places um, without having recourse to the, the kind of economic infrastructure, which was mostly, you know, centered in the big cities. Um, so basically, on the linguistic level, how this plays out is that these are Arabic speakers for the most part. Okay, not entirely because there are also Jews coming from non-Arab countries, um, for instance, from Iran or from Turkey or so forth. But speaking of the majority of them who are coming from Arabic-speaking countries, most of them um, have a relationship to Arabic that, for them, is you know a very legitimate and natural relationship. This is not only the language that they speak at home in many cases. Although, in, you know, some of these communities were bilingual or for North African Jews, some of them were, you know, Francophone. Uh, there were also Egyptian Jews and Lebanese Jews who were Francophone. So I don't want to greatly oversimplify, but if we kind of look by and large at the relationship of most of these communities to Arabic, that's their mother tongue. It's also a language that um, for the past, you know, 70 years or so, Jews have actually been using as a cultural language, as a literary language. They've been producing in it. They've been taking part in Arab culture, and it's something that they're very closely identified with. And to come to a new country and suddenly be told that, you know, you cannot speak this language anymore, this is not a Jewish language, this is the language of the enemy, this is basically taboo, it's, it's quite devastating, right? I mean, it's basically being told that your entire identity is not legitimate, in fact, that it's something to be ashamed of. And so this caused a, a really big cultural and psychological crisis for um, these communities. Um, it also created a split between the first generation and the second generation. So the children of these parents, you know, become ashamed, basically, of, of the fact that their parents speak Arabic and want to have nothing to do with it. And so that story is something that becomes played out in the literature, um, especially of that second generation who arrived to Israel as um, young children or sometimes adolescents and acquire Hebrew and become writers. And the story that they tell is often very much one of this kind of generational split, right, where the parents are unable to adapt and assimilate and um, really um, immerse themselves in Hebrew culture and society. And in many cases, 
it's a story about a father who really loses his social and economic standing, you know, because he's unable to um, the, the either because the profession that they were engaged in formerly is not accessible to them in Israel or doesn't exist. So there's a you know great drop in stature. But this is very much also bound up with the self-perception because of language, right, where the second generation wants the parents really to erase their Arabic accent to sound like everybody else just to speak Hebrew, and they, they can't do it. And I guess this is particularly traumatic, this loss of Arabic for people who had already been writers in their places of origin, right? So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those first generation writers or, or um, I don't know, I guess the, the most famous examples that you bring up in the book are Shimon Balas and Sami Mikhail, but also some other people and maybe how their, their adaptation to writing in Hebrew happened and, and what that meant in terms of identity. Um, absolutely. So Balas and Mikhail in particular um, they have been written about by myself and others, including Nancy Berg, who actually wrote the, the first book about Jewish writers from Iraq. And so this is something that's been um, explored. They're very interesting because, first of all, they're higher profile, especially Sami Mikhail, but especially because they are first generation writers who had begun to establish themselves in Arabic, as you just said, all right, before they came to Israel and did have to make that transition, which is a little bit different than when we're talking about people who come to Israel at a very young age and essentially acquire, you know, native proficiency in Hebrew, even if it's not technically their first language. So for Michael and Balas, um, both of them arrived in Israel as young adults. Um, Michael's background was slightly different. He, I think, um, came to Israel via Iran. He came on his own without his family. Um, he immediately became involved uh, with a um, al Had, which was an Arabic newspaper associated with the Israeli Communist Party and um, based in the north. He was living in, the, in Haifa. And um, he was involved with this circle of Palestinian Arabs and recent uh, and Jewish immigrants from Iraq who all self-identified as communists and who um, had literary circles and salons. And so it kind of provided a forum for him to continue publishing in Arabic when he first arrived in Israel. Um, Balas had a, a French educational background in Iraq. He went to the Alliance French language school there. Um, and he was also kind of enamored of, um, uh, he was kind of, I would say vaguely left-wing. I don't think he was an actively a communist. He'd actually worked for an Iraqi Jewish senator um, as an adolescent. But, um, Similarly, he was very much identified with Arabic and had kind of begun, you know, his first literary forays in Arabic. So for Michael, um, who starts publishing in Arabic in Israel, for him, the decision to switch to Hebrew, I think, was very uh, conscious, kind of realizing that he had to decide who his audience was. And he kind of made a realistic assessment of the situation and realized that, you know, he was going to have to be writing for an Israeli Jewish public, and he had no choice but to learn Hebrew. That said, he himself has actually talked about this process as one that was extremely difficult, that took him um, well over a decade, and he said changing your language is more difficult than changing your sex. That was actually how he put it in an interview. So he wrote the um, first draft of his first novel in Arabic and then apparently ripped it up and you know, started all over again in Hebrew after a very long hiatus. And, um, you know, that actually he, he didn't really get underway as a Hebrew writer until um, later, like late 1960s, early 1970s. 
Shimon Balas actually wrote the first novel to appear in Hebrew by a Mizrahi author. That was called Hamabara, the transit camp. And um, that novel, um, written in Hebrew, also has a fair number of um, Arabic words kind of in it. It, it. it depicts the lives of Iraqi immigrants in one of these transit camps that I mentioned um, and their attempts to kind of organize and uh, organize themselves and assert their rights um, before the authorities and that these, these kind of attempts to self-organize are invariably squashed and they don't succeed. So it's kind of a tale of, of the frustration that they felt. Um, but it's also a very important book because it provides a counter narrative to the kind of reigning view of the immigrants as being passive or helpless or disorganized. You know, and this is actually a completely uh, a counter image of that, that, um, you know, shows you that they were they were very much aware of what was happening and that they were trying to um, find a way to protest the conditions and that ultimately they just weren't successful because they weren't powerful enough. And, and other writers insist on continuing writing in Arabic. Is that right? A very few, very few. So, I mean, people, again, Balas, um, when Balas reflects on his decision to switch to Hebrew, I mean, he also, like Michael, kind of sees it as a matter of exigency rather than an ideological, um, you know, decision. But he says that what he's trying to do in his work is to bring Hebrew closer to Arabic, right? And he doesn't feel that he's kind of relinquishing his identity as an author so much as he's just trying to kind of move it into another language. Um, there were a few holdouts who uh, really felt that they weren't able to do that, that to be true to themselves as authors, they had to continue to write in their native language. The main one in that camp was Samir Nokash. Um, who was uh, slightly younger than Mikhail and Balas. He was, I think, 13 when he came to Israel uh, with his family, also from Baghdad. He refused, although he actually could have written in Hebrew because he was young enough when he arrived in Israel, he, he refused to make that change. And he has explained in interviews that he thinks you simply can't, you know, as an artist, uh, write in a language that's not your native language. And specifically because he wants to, in his work, he wanted to write about Iraq. He really felt that he needed to do that in the language that was, uh, you know, part of the place. Um, so he was fairly prolific. Unfortunately, he, he died kind of young in his mid-60s in um, 2004. But he had a terrible time getting published. And see, that's where almost everybody switched to Hebrew, because if you didn't switch to Hebrew, you would have no readership. That was basically the realization that Michael and Balas came to pretty early on. So Samir Makash, who insisted on writing in Arabic, had a terrible time getting published. He had to self-publish some of his works. There's very little, um, you know, by way of Arab publishing houses within Israel. There's not much of a market for it. And because of the political circumstances, you would not really be able to work with publishing houses in other Arab countries. And your works, you know, if you're identified as an Israeli author, your work is not going to be picked up really in, you know, much. Uh, basically, you won't have the access to the readership throughout the Arab world. So he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, and his decision to continue writing in Arabic was, was very, very ideological. Aside from him, there was a hand, I mean, there's really like a very small handful of other writers who persisted in producing in Arabic. They were, again, almost exclusively from Iraq and Egypt. Um, there are a number of them who continued writing in both languages. Uh, some names, like, for instance, Yitzhak Bar Moshe is one of them. 
Um, there is Shalom Darwish, who wrote in Arabic and also produced one story collection in Hebrew, and a handful of others, but it was a very marginal phenomenon, really, especially in comparison to Mizrahi literature, which has really become a major part of the Israeli literary scene now, going into the third generation. So then maybe let's talk a little about the second and then the third generation. These people grow up in a, in a more Hebrew environment and then use aspects of standard Hebrew and other registers of Hebrew as well as different registers of Arabic in their writing? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, so okay, we have to kind of, first of all, distinguish between, you know, what are we talking about when we say first, second, third generation? So as I explained, the first generation, and the way I see this generational kind of map is that first generation would refer to people who come to Israel essentially fully formed, right? So we're talking about young adults through older adults, um, such as Michael and Balas. They've had their whole education already. You know, they come in their early 20s, and their education was all in Arabic. And so this is the generation that, in a way, has the hardest time, right, because they really have to learn a new language from scratch, and it's really not easy to do that as an adult and then start writing in it. The second generation, um, I'm looking at this kind of on linguistic terms. So it's not so much important to me whether or not they were actually born in Israel. The question is, you know, their linguistic identity and what their native language is. So for me, second generation would mean those writers who either were born in Israel to families where, you know, they might have continued speaking Arabic or other languages at home, but basically they're born in Israel. And so for all intents and purposes, they're, they're native Hebrew speakers and their education, which is really key here, their education was entirely in Hebrew. Or it could also include those who came as young children. So, you know, by the time they start school, again, they're going through this whole educational process um, within the Israeli state system in Hebrew. So these um, writers come out of this with a native command of Hebrew, and that's their writing language. But they also have exposure from home to colloquial Arabic. And here I should explain for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with this, that Arabic um, is a word that can actually, you know, it denotes more than one language. We call it, we say Arabic, but when we say that, we might be referring to colloquial Arabic, which are basically different dialects of Arabic, right, that, that really differ very much from country to country and even within a country, even, you know, region to region. And, you know, the Arabic that is spoken in North Africa is not in any way comprehensible to somebody in Saudi Arabia or somebody even in Syria. I mean, it's, it's really very different. And um, these are, you know, just again, vernacular Arabic, they're just dialects that are spoken. Now, by contrast, literary Arabic, the Arabic that you would use for writing a newspaper article or for writing a contemporary short story or novel, that is actually standard. And it's not, you know, it's not unrelated, but it's, it's not <laughs> the same as the colloquial dialect. It's actually kind of like an updated, modernized version of the Arabic of the Quran and Islamic heritage. Right. And so that's we would call that modern standard Arabic or for our discussion of literature, we could just say literary Arabic. Sometimes people call it classical Arabic, which is a bit misleading because it implies that it's not modern. But basically what we're just trying to do is distinguish it from spoken Arabic. Right. So the key point is that the first generation, they have the training in that literary Arabic and they speak their native dialect of Arabic from the home. And Jews often had their own dialect. So in Baghdad, there would be a Jewish Baghdadi dialect that would be quite different from the Muslim one, even though Jews could understand Muslims and they could you know, speak with Muslims. But at home, they would speak their own Jewish dialect of Arabic. Yet the Arabic that they're writing is exactly the same 
as whatever the Muslim and Christian Iraqi writers are, you know, writing in. They, they share a, a literary language. So the second generation Mizrahim, now to return to Israel, they are hearing the colloquial Arabic at home. That's just whatever their parents brought with them from their own societies. But they don't at all have any background in literary or classical Arabic. So their writing language is Hebrew. But when they're writing about their families and they're trying to kind of represent that linguistic milieu or ambience from the home, then they tend to bring those elements of classical, um, I'm sorry, not classical, the opposite of colloquial Arabic, or in some cases, depending on the author of French that might have been spoken at home or Italian or even um, Berber dialects from North Africa. And they really mix it into the Hebrew, producing this kind of creolized Hebrew that just represents what was spoken at home, which is not, you know, a kind of standard monolingual Hebrew, but really a mix of languages and dialects. And so some of some writers would employ that sort of creolized Hebrew, or maybe that's what you mean by Mizrahi Hebrew, and then others would use colloquial in, for code switching. Do those yeah. serve different functions? Or, right. So okay, they would usually write the narration with with few exceptions, and I discuss one of these exceptions in the book. But basically, the idea is that the narrator would be giving you the story in a standard Hebrew, which is called Ivrit Tiknit, like a you know kind of the equivalent of standard English, right? It's just kind of like a grammatically, it's considered grammatically correct. It's basically dictionary Hebrew. But when they're representing the, the dialogue of the characters to sort of faithfully transcribe what it actually sounds like to give you the, the sense of, you know, again, the sort of ambiance or the atmosphere at home, then they transcribe it in this mix, this kind of pigeon, you know, which it could go back and forth between different languages in one sentence or it could be like a sort of ungrammatical immigrant Hebrew. So when I talk about Mizrahi Hebrew, it could mean any number of things. Um, usually we're talking about what we'd be, we would be representing immigrant Hebrew, you know, in this case, if we're saying Mizrahi Hebrew, um, that would be kind of like a less grammatically correct, if you're going by the rules, kind of Hebrew. That's the uh, a Hebrew that is the equivalent of, you know, an immigrant English, let's say, like if you're representing English that's going to be spoken by a first-generation Italian immigrant, or I don't know what, right, might have some grammatical inconsistency. So essentially, to break it down, I'm talking about two separate but interrelated things. One is a Hebrew that's not considered grammatically correct, that has um, errors that are kind of consistent with, you know, what would be made by a new immigrant from a certain country because of interference from their native language. And then there's also the aspect of how they mix that with the languages that they bring with them. And so this mixture of the kind of like ungrammatical Hebrew and the um, pigeon, you know, if you want to call it that, of the other languages, um, the multilingualism, right, that's being brought into it. That's what the second generation writers are representing when they're showing the character speaking. And that's what was innovative in their work. Um, at the same time, I mean, there are writers who even push it to the extent that the whole book is written in this kind of Hebrew that's not uh, a standard, you know, dictionary perfect Hebrew. And this is considered actually quite innovative because um, it, it really makes the language breathe. It makes it um, brings it closer to, you know, the reality of these people's lives. And it presents some alternatives to the Hebrew that is a kind of very ideologically, you know, it's a language that's created, as I described at the uh, earlier in this interview, as part of the Zionist project. So it's like a very ideological language and kind of breaking down the, the, you know, kind of standard Hebrew is in a way also challenging the ideology that was behind 
the creation of that language to some degree. I wonder how you see this as part of the formation of a Mizrahi identity. And I'm asking because I found the example that you give of Sarah Shiloh in the book particularly interesting uh, because she seems to use Moroccan dialect in her work. And if I understand correctly, she herself is Iraqi. Is that, that I thought that was an interesting switch. That was an interesting switch. So, you know, the interesting thing about that particular book, which is called No Elves Are Coming, um, in English, the English translation was actually retitled as The Falafel King is Dead. For anyone who's interested in looking for it, you'll find it under that title. Um, so there's actually not a whole lot of Moroccan dialect in that book. That was more of the kind of non-standard Hebrew that I was describing. So there are kind of the two complementary sides of this phenomenon, right? The, the kind of broken Hebrew, if you want to put it that way, versus the multilingualism within the Hebrew. This book actually was more heavily weighted towards the, the broken immigrant Hebrew. But it is true, this was an Iraqi woman who um, herself is a native Hebrew speaker, but um, she was living for many years in a town that was heavily populated by immigrants from North Africa. And I think that in a way she felt herself to be kind of an outsider in the town. She was also, I believe she was a teacher or had some other educational position and kind of would have been like on, you know, the, the upper end uh, of the sort of social and, you know, cultural hierarchy within the, the town. So it wasn't that she's, she's actually presenting this more as an ethnographer than as something that, you know, she grew up with, what I understand. Okay. And so, and we've gone through the first and second generations. The The most recent generation has very little ability in, in Arabic, right. or at least in terms of writing. And then there seems to be an emergence of, of other kinds of languages, what you refer to as Ashdodid or Ashdodian, um, but also a, sort of a return of other kinds of Arabic in the writing. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So, I was really fascinated by the third generation because what you see is that as each generation becomes um, sequentially, you know, more and more removed from Arabic, uh, there's a, a real change, there's a transformation of what Arabic means to them and the way in which they use it in their Hebrew. So as I explained, for the first generation, they just had to learn Hebrew. And so even though they're writing in Hebrew, they're kind of constantly in negotiation with the Arabic that they, they grew up in. And they're kind of constantly translating themselves. The second generation is producing this sort of mixture of Arabic and Hebrew within a, a Hebrew frame. For the third generation, they can't even do that because they're growing up in basically monolingual Hebrew homes, you know, where they, the Arabic that they know would be like their grandparents' Arabic. So it would be similar maybe for some of the listeners, uh, if we want to kind of bring it home, I, I imagine that many of the listeners might associate Yiddish with their grandparents, but they don't know more than a few words, you know, something like that. Um, so for these third generation writers, I mean, some of them might have a little bit more exposure than others, but basically their exposure to Arabic is very limited. And for some of them, in fact, they might know more Arabic just from what they learned at school for a couple of years or what they picked up in the army than what they got at home. But then paradoxically, what you see is that the um, kind of impulse of wanting to assimilate, wanting to acculturate and become Israeli swings back around in the other direction, kind of does a boomerang. And they actually start to think through this whole story and think, wait a minute, you know, why did my parents give up their identity so easily? Why did they give up this language? Um, you know, this language is my heritage. They become very interested in Arabic and they want to recover it. But in a way, you know, again, it's sort of an artificial process because as much as they become invested in the idea of Arabic, it's something that should be their patrimony or their heritage. They don't actually have it. So the whole recovery process is really kind of like a, a mental effort. So what happens is they start writing about this idea of Arabic as something that is lost. They start writing about the sense of 
you know, they're, they're kind of looking for an identity. And the whole notion of Arabic comes to represent this sense of, you know, kind of like a post-immigrant identity, looking for your, looking for your roots or looking for some alternatives to um, the culture that you're embedded in, wanting to reconnect, but not really knowing how. So it just becomes a symbol. And then that produces some really interesting uh, imaginative approaches where, you know, for instance, that, that you brought up the Ashtorian. Um, that was actually a poem by Sami Shalom Fitri, who we might, we, he would be more of a second generation writer, but on the younger end. He actually does know Arabic. Um, he knows Moroccan Arabic. But this particular poem that he was writing says, I write in Ashtorian so you won't understand a word. And he's addressing this to the Israeli reader. And what he's basically doing is taking a, a term from the Bible, Ashtodit, which connotes a language that's spoken by the enemies of Israel, but it's considered to be a language that kind of, the language is like the enemy of Hebrew. And he's reappropriating that word, but it's very, um, it's very clever to wordplay because Ashdod is a port city in Israel south of Tel Aviv that's populated largely by Mizrahi immigrants. And then the poem itself is written in this kind of like um, street Hebrew that's also associated in uh, largely with Mizrahim, especially in places like Eshdod, rather than in the kind of proper, you know, highbrow literary Hebrew. And he calls that Eshdodian or Eshdodit. And so it's kind of like performing this whole notion that you can actually have a, a different language that's an alternative to the standard Hebrew that's associated with Zionism and the whole ideology, right? And so there's a way of kind of breaking through that and saying, I'm going to actually create this other language, pretend that it's not Hebrew, writing it as an alternative. It also has a little bit of Moroccan embedded in it as well. I thought the the third generation was really well represented by the story you mentioned written by Amog Bahar called Ana Minu Yehud about a, a protagonist who suffers from some sort of illness that gives him his grandfather's accent. So he has an Iraqi accent, but he doesn't actually speak any Arabic. Could you speak about that story a little bit? Yeah, it's a fabulous story. So this story won the short story contest um, in Haaretz, the uh, you know, leading Israeli newspaper in 2005. So basically every year they, they have a contest for the best new short story, and this won that prize that year. Um, so at that time, the author, Amog Bahar, was not well known at all. He was just a student. Now he's pretty well established in the Israeli literary scene. He has a novel and a few co a collection of short stories and two poetry collections. Um, but this story, which, you know, catapulted him into the literary scene, was really quite remarkable. So it's written in a very strange Hebrew that doesn't really sound like the Hebrew that you're used to reading in modern Israeli fiction. Um, the Hebrew itself is kind of vaguely reminiscent of anyone out there is familiar with Shai Agnon's style. It has more of kind of the rabbinic influences in it. It feels a little bit um, archaic or anachronistic. So this narrator who's supposed to be like a modern day, you know, native Israeli, like student age, let's say, um, he wakes up one morning and he finds out, he discovers that it's very Kafkaesque, right? Like he's been transformed. He can no longer speak Hebrew like an ordinary Israeli. He's, Hebrew is coming out with this Iraqi accent that he associates with his, his dead Iraqi grandfather. So it's kind of been turned into an immigrant Hebrew. Um, so he's wandering through Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, people think that he's actually an Arab because when he speaks Hebrew, it comes out with this Arabic accent. He's even detained by the police. And he can't, he finds that he just can't really talk to anybody. Um, and when he tries to say that he's Jewish, for some reason, that's the only sentence that comes out in Arabic. But it doesn't actually even, 
he, he isn't even actually capable of saying it out loud. Like he tries to say it. He, for some reason, he thinks of it in Arabic, Anamin of Yehud, and, and he doesn't even really enunciate it. So he's kind of rendered speechless. Um, so he's wandering around kind of in this hallucinatory you know, state of mind through Jerusalem. And then as the story progresses, he realizes that this um, strange disease that's dispossessing people of their native Israeli Hebrew is actually spreading to other communities. And so people are all reverting to the accent of their grandparents. But again, without reacquiring the languages, it's just the accent. So it's very strange because it's not saying, like, let's stop speaking Hebrew, let's go back to the other languages. And we think that's impossible, but at the same time, it's kind of turning native Israelis back into immigrants, which, you know, you can interpret that as you wish, but however you want to interpret it, it's certainly not, doesn't seem to be a call for, you know, Israeli nationalism. <laughs> um, so, you know, the story ends kind of inconclusively, but it has this sort of, Imagine dialogue with his grandfather, where his grandfather's coming back from the dead to speak through him. And the whole thing is very eerie. And it's obviously, you know, very much trying to call up and conjure up that Arabic from the dead, as it were, you know, the place of Arabic within Israeli Jewish culture and collective memory and kind of give it a voice, even if that voice can't really come out, which I think he's saying, you know, it's kind of impossible under the circumstances, but the desire is there to bring it back. So if we could shift gears for a second, we've spoken a lot about um, Middle Eastern Jewish and Mizrahi writers writing in Arabic and Hebrew. Could you speak a little bit also about the a comparable phenomena among Palestinian Israelis, their use of Arabic and also of, of an adaptation to Hebrew? Yeah, so that's the other side of the story that I was trying to tell in this book. And that's why you know, I really wanted it to be a story about the full picture of the literary and cultural interaction between Arabic and Hebrew, both through translation and through literary bilingualism. So on the flip side of that story of, you know, Jews who come from Arab countries, we have Palestinian Arabs who become Israeli citizens and acquire Hebrew as a second language. And so this is something that's ongoing ever since the creation of the state, right, in 1948. Um, so there are a number of writers who at this point are fairly well known who are Arabs with Israeli citizenship who write in Hebrew. Uh, I think probably some of the listeners might be familiar with Sayed Kashua because he's now based in the U.S. and he tours uh, U.S. college campuses very widely and he's given a lot of talks especially in the last couple of years. So he, for instance, is well-known in Israel. He has a weekly column in Haaretz, and he also has a television show that he writes for called Arab Labor. And he wrote Abu Aravid. It's been going on for a number of years. and is um, kind of the first show in Israeli primetime that was um, in Arabic. So this is, a, this is a sitcom, basically, that's focused on uh, like a kind of assimilated Arab family living in Israel. Um, in addition, he's published a number of novels, and they've been very well received. The first, um, not the first person to write in Hebrew, but the first person to gain massive critical acclaim for doing so was Anton Shamas, who wrote uh, a novel called Arabesques in Hebrew Arabeskot, came out in 1986. And this really kind of paved the way for younger writers like Kashua. I mean, it was really like a massive game changer in Israel. You know, this was an amazing novel of superior literary quality, really brilliantly conceived, that just kind of blew open the whole notion that, you know, this kind of mastery of Hebrew with all of its different cultural layers was something that was exclusively Jewish. He, he proved that, you know, anybody would be able to do this if they had the desire and uh, the kind of just, you know, um, the, the resources to do so. He himself had been educated in the Hebrew University and, 
now. He's um, now in Michigan. So I was really, you know, curious to see um, the, the phenomenon, not just of bilingualism, but specifically of, you know, how are these writers actually using Jewish culture in their work? Because it's one thing to take on the language, but it's another thing to really kind of plumb the depths of, you know, the whole um, cultural heritage that comes with the language. And specifically because their writing has opened up this debate about is Hebrew a Jewish language and, you know, what's the connection between Hebrew and Jewishness or Hebrew language and Jewish culture. So it occurred to me that people are kind of always saying, yes, what they're doing is, you know, showing that Hebrew is not just a Jewish language or no, what they're doing is not. And I said, you know, maybe we can stop discussing that question of how to define Hebrew as a Jewish language and actually say, how are they actually using Jewish heritage in their work? And just very curious about that. So for that purpose, I turn to the poetry of um, Palestinians living in Israel who are bilingual. And I'll, I look specifically at three poets, all of whom have published both in Arabic and in Hebrew. These are Antonshim Mas, who I mentioned earlier, who published two collections of poetry a long time ago. Um, he was pretty young. And they, those, those came out actually before the novel in the early 80s. Salman Masalha, who's still very active as a poet, and uh, he still publishes regularly in Haaret as well. Um, he, again, has published extensively both in Arabic and in Hebrew. And then finally, Naim Araidi, who is actually Druze, um, who also is mainly a poet and writes in both languages. And what I found looking at their Hebrew poetry is that they really do use Jewish heritage extensively. I mean, in a way that might be counterintuitive to somebody coming at this from the outside and thinking, you know, they're not Jewish. You, you actually find a great deal of Jewish heritage, and they're very familiar with it. And I'm talking about Bible, uh, rabbinic literature, liturgical texts. They really use it, but they use it um, very strategically. That is, they use it sometimes ironically, sometimes subversively, you know, and in a way, in so doing, they're not doing something completely new because other Israeli poets have done the same thing. They've taken the language of the sources and kind of turned it inside out. But in this case, they're using it to convey the messages that they feel they need to convey as Arabs working in Hebrew. And so it's a very pointed use of the sources. And you call this use, I mean, you refer to this as Palestinian Midrash, which I think is a, a great term. Um, is that is that what you mean by... Is it an example of what you mean by writing in between Hebrew and Arabic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely feel that what they're doing is Midrash. If we understand Midrash as a reinterpretation, right, and sort of an ongoing story of these um, these fundamental, uh, you know, Jewish texts and, and the stories that are within them. So they're continuing the conversation, as it were. So, you know, one example would be when Naim Araidi rewrites the four questions in a language about his own imprisonment in a, a Jewish prison. He was briefly imprisoned um, a long time ago, back in the early 70s. And he writes this uh, poem, and this will be a great example, I think, of writing in between Arabic and Hebrew. He writes a poem that's addressed to the guard. And this is a poem that can only be understood, really, if you know the identity of the poet, right? And so he says, answer me, guard, what makes this night different from all other nights? That all other nights pass slowly, and this night also passes slowly, right? Because every night in prison passes slowly. Right. Um, so if you're a Jewish reader, the first thing you think is, you know, obviously he is invoking the four questions, which is, you know, it's an inner text that is going to be universally accessible and recognizable almost to any Jewish reader. And he's using it again, you know, very ironically as a Palestinian, <laughs> taking the, the language of the text about, you know, the Jewish, the great Jewish liberation story 
and inverting it to, you know, make a point about his his position there in an Israeli prison being denied his freedom. At the same time, though, and this is where you really get back to the idea of in between. If you're reading it, let's say, now this this poem was written in Hebrew, but let's just imagine for a minute that the poem were translated into Arabic, which I don't think it was. But if you've been reading it in Arabic and you were coming at this with uh, an Arabic cultural frame of reference, you would immediately think of a different inner text. You would not think of the four questions. You would think of the identity card poem by Mahmoud Darwish, who's the leading um, Palestinian poet. Um, he died, I think, in uh, 2008. And he he's very... Um, I mean, he has a number of poems that are iconic and extremely famous, but maybe the most of all is his poem Identity Card, which he wrote early in his career. And that's a conversation of a Palestinian with an Israeli guard where he says, write down, I am an Arab. And he continues to kind of describe himself and his family. And it's a very kind of defiant poem where you can imagine on the other end that there's an interrogator saying, what is your name? And instead of giving him his name, you know, he kind of tells him about his family and their connection to the place, but he keeps saying, write it down, I am an Arab. So this poem is very much, I think, written in between two different cultural and linguistic frameworks, right? One is the Arabic one, where this is a rewriting of that identity card poem, where it's adapting, you know, the conversation between the Palestinian and the Israeli guard or interrogator. And then the second one, of course, is the Passover Haggadah. So as we come sort of to the end of the book, I was curious about why you you end with the question of what it means to be a witness or a partial witness. Yeah, um, I really felt that at the end of the book, having established all of this, I needed to kind of touch more on. I mean, you know, I was writing this book over a very long period and it went through if, if I think about when I actually started working on this book and where we've come to now, there's really been a massive transformation of the political landscape in Israel. And I felt that I needed to close with something that really spoke to the, the where we are now, you know, the, the questions at the heart of, you know, this very troubling political turn in Israel to the extreme right and the prominence of figures like Lieberman and Bennett and the, the kind of general, you know, just suspicion and mistrust that is placed around Arab citizens in Israel. And I was really moved by this poem that Salman Masalha had written called Hatikva, of course, the you know, name of the Israeli national anthem, which describes um, a violent event. And I mean, it's very abstract. You don't know exactly what's happened, but you know that there is a body lying in a street. You know that there's fragments of metal. So it basically evokes the scene of a bombing. And this is written by a Palestinian in Israel. And Palestinians are, of course, you know, as soon as anything happens, any any person who's in the vicinity who's unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, who's Arab, is immediately going to be, you know, subject to scrutiny and, and everybody's suspicion. And so I was thinking, you know, what does it mean to witness something like this and to write about it, especially in Hebrew, you know, when you are on the side that is associated with the violence and with the perpetrators of this violence. Um, you know, how do you witness this back to an Israeli audience? How can you actually speak to them? And the amazing thing for me about this poem is that it has a very subtle, but um, definitely, you know, it's definitely there. It has this intertextual uh, relationship with Sal Chernikovsky, who's one of the two great poets of the modern Hebrew revival. The other one, of course, being Chaim Nachman Bialik. And it goes back to this um, cycle of sonnets that Chernikovsky had written that pertain to the question of witnessing violence when he himself as a Jew in Russia was witnessing the ravages of the revolution and the civil war and, you know, what it means to have this kind of insider outsider status. And so I felt that that was an ethical question that was just really important to me personally, as I wanted to kind of close the book um, without 
you know, the book is political in a sense, but it's also very much about literature and about language. And I really felt that I needed to bring it back to kind of the core question of what does this mean, you know, on a political level, on an ethical level. Um, so it's not that I resolve the question, but at least I wanted to, to put it out there and show that these, these texts really also do engage with these questions in a really deep way, in a profound way, and, and make us think back through them. So that was what that was doing there. And in a way, I think that the whole book is kind of a, an effort or an attempt to witness, um, you know, this relationship between Hebrew and Arabic, which, again, I present on the level of culture, but which is innately political and has so many political ramifications. How we think about the other, how we treat the other, you know, is, is largely a function of how we perceive them in their language and their culture. Wow. Okay. So I think we've taken up probably too much of your time. Could you just um, tell me what you're working on now? Sure. So um, right now I'm working on an intellectual history of Jewish writers in the Arab world. So I'm kind of going back in time and I'm looking at Jewish writers who um, were writing from Cairo, Baghdad, um, and actually in pre-state Palestine as part of the modern Arabic Renaissance, which is called the Nahda, as well as the Hebrew Haskalah. And there, again, I'm going back to Hebrew and Arabic, but now it's very much about um, the story of enlightenment and modernization in the Middle East. Great. Thank you very much, Lital. That sounds like an awesome project. I look forward to, to seeing it. And uh, thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. 